0: All right, so Rob, how long have you been in a relationship with Jazz for now? Uh, it's been on overall, overall like eight years, but we've had obviously our little stints here and there, but yeah. Yeah, okay. So you've been with your beautiful wife, Jasmina, for
1: the the better part of the decade. Uh, so if you can tell us a little bit about your background with jazz and uh, the experiences
0: that you guys have had together. We and the audience would greatly appreciate it. Yeah, that. of course. Um, like you mentioned, jazz and I have been together for the better part of a decade. Um, it wasn't, I mean, I'm super blessed now. We're super blessed now to be married uh, two years. We just had our second year anniversary on um, this past November, but it wasn't always um, in a, in the greatest of places. So um my wife, jazz, she's white, um, we're well, really European. she's originally from Macedonia, and before we started dating, I had no idea where Macedonia was. Um, I didn't know anything about the culture and didn't know anything about the people. I just you know I met her she's beautiful, she's just a great, a great soul and um, wanted to get to know her more and, and that was just, that's just part of who she is. so um, yeah, we met, we started talking and I didn't again like I didn't know much about the Macedonian culture um but you know jazz kind of alluded to at the beginning that you know her her family wasn't really big on interracial relationships um I'm you know I had dealt with that you know basically my entire life kind of backing up a little bit um I I moved around a lot with my parents my dad worked for ADP for a really long time and um every area that we moved to was predominantly white so that was just basically my background growing up, um, you know, in white communities. Um, and, you know, as I got older and started, you know, being interested in, in dating girls, like that was really, um, all that was available to me. Um, I was usually the only black, one of the only black kids in school. And that's just kind of what I was attracted to just growing up. That was always, you know, in the front of my mind. So, um, you know, getting back to jazz, like I I wasn't too worried about the interracial thing because I had been dealing with it my entire life. But, uh, you know, unbeknownst to me, um, this would have been, you know, this was going to be the hardest, I guess, transition for both of us. Um, And I really wasn't necessarily prepared for it um, at the beginning. So, you know, Jazz and I, we had been dating for a while. You know, I never met her family, anyone in her family. Um, And, you know, going back to the whole Macedonian culture, I was like, oh, maybe, you know, all Macedonians are like this because I I didn't know anything about, you know, the culture or anything like that. But meeting Jazz's friends who are mostly Macedonian and, you know, going to holiday parties, birthday parties and getting to know um, these other individuals that were, you know, kind of from the same area of Jazz's, Jazz's family they were all very embracing and loving towards me so i was like all right well it's not you know it's not a macedonian thing so maybe it's just her parents have a problem with it and, and that's fine um but they never wanted to get to know me or know anything about me or our relationship they didn't really support jazz at all in it um and i i thought that was kind of wild it was like the only thing that you know about me is that I'm black. Like you don't know what type of person I am. You don't know if I'm educated or not. You don't know the type, you know, you don't know my family, how I was brought up. You just, you know, you don't like me because of the color of my skin, which I, which I thought was crazy. Um, I could always kind of sidestep that in previous relationships. Um, At least they would want to meet me and get to know me and then make their judgment afterwards. But this didn't even get to that point. So that was a little wild to me. Um, So you know, fast forward to you know we're we're in our relationship and it's getting you know getting pretty serious, and I'm not able to you know go to Jazz's parents' house to you know just try to build a relationship with them. And every time that they would call, did you did you want a relationship yeah. with them? Was I think I was, I was more in interested it? in in it because it was important to Jazz. I'm the type of person who's like, mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't want to get to know me and you're basing everything off the the color, the color of my skin and you don't know anything about me, like, that's your problem. That's fine. And I don't need to, I don't need to know you, um, or have a relationship with you based on that. But when it starts affecting the person that I love and that I care about, you know, that's what was really driving me to try to reach out to these people to build some type of relationship because it's, it's hurting, it's hurting jazz, which is in, coming back into our relationship and causing some some issues that didn't necessarily need to need to be there. We had our own things personally that we were dealing with uh, within our relationship. We didn't need to bring that into it as well. So, so Raul, let me ask you, before you go on,
1: because this, this is interesting, you, you, Jazz wanted you to have a force, relationship yeah, with force. them. Uh, obviously, obviously, she was raised by them. So she probably had a feeling that her parents weren't fond of uh yeah african americans uh so the effort that she wanted you to put in was was it to change their mind so they can embrace you as her boyfriend and future husband or kind of like well let's see how it
0: goes if it doesn't go well we'll just move forward if it does go well great we can have them no i mean friend. she she genuinely wanted me to have a relationship with them like she was her parents never treated her You know great they only kind of called when they needed something um they never asked how her day was going or or what was going on with her job or anything like that um they're just kind of they just seem to be kind of cold people and and kind of selfish to be honest with you i haven't met them really but um they just they just seemed very very selfish so it was really more from jazz's perspective that she wanted you know this is my parents like they're not perfect um, but they're still my parents and I and I, I care about you and I and I want everybody kinda of to be in this harmonious relationship with, which is not always uh feasible. Um definitely not feasible in this situation, but I think she, she was just genuine in, in, in that aspect that she just wanted everyone to kind of get along um and then move forward from there. But um unfortunately that that's not the case. Um so you know, kinda of getting back to the story. Um, we were supposed to go on a ski trip and, um, we were in the sporting goods store picking out this ski stuff and jazz's dad called, right. And, you know, they speak in Macedonian when they talk. So I, I don't really, I mean, I speak a little bit of it now just from, um, learning from jazz, but at the time I didn't know anything, um, what they were, what they were talking about, but I could tell it wasn't, wasn't good. Um, and when Jazz hung up the phone, she was clearly kind of, you know, distraught and upset. And I was like, you know, what happened? And, you know, she was like, my dad told me that, you know, I need to stop seeing you, um, that you're bringing, you know, you're disgracing the family by, by being with this person. Um, and if you don't, if you don't break up with him, we're going to disown you from the family. And they had made similar threats before. And I kind of just kind of just brushed it off and she kind of just brushed it off uh, as best she could, but it was definitely, you know, starting to get to her more and more. So I just turned to her and I was like, you know what, this is, this is dumb. Like, let's go over to your parents' house. You know, let's try and figure this out as adults. Um, they don't, they, like again, they've never met me. They don't know anything about me. Maybe if they meet me and maybe we could sit down, it doesn't even have to be a long conversation. They can, we can start to build some type of relationship. It's not going to happen overnight, but you know, at least we, we could take a first step. So, High insight. that wasn't the best decision. Um, but we did end up going over there. And we walk up the front, walk, walk up the steps, you know, ring the doorbell. And Jazz's dad opens the door. And I hear a scream from the background. And it's Jazz's mom. She, she could see, like, me standing in the doorway. And, like, something out of, like, a horror film. This This scream, I'll never forget it. And her dad jazz's dad turns to her and you know starts yelling at her in macedonian and is essentially like you know why did you bring him here and you know he turns to me and he's like motherfucker you better get off my steps you 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 disgraceful nigger like how like how are you even how are you even at my home you're disgracing my home and he's just screaming and screaming and um you know i had reached out introduced myself like hey i'm i'm the person that's dating your daughter i just wanted to have a um you know a conversation with you and it didn't even get to that point point. and he turns to jazz and basically is like you know get off my step you're never welcome back at my house and he's talking to his daughter like this and i'm like if you're talking to your own family member like this you know i don't even i want nothing to do with you the only reason why i'm here is for jazz and he ends up slamming the door in our face and, you know, we're walking back to the car. And I think that was basically going to be the end of it, but the garage door opens and he comes running out the garage door, waving, um, a metal pipe and screaming and like chasing us, essentially chasing us off, or- off of his property. So we get in the car, we like speed off jazz is crying. I'm trying to console her. And I'm like, I've been in, in racial situations, but nothing that intense. Um, and I guess, long story short, right, we, we made it through. Um, this was before our actual, our actual wedding. Um, you know, her parents, none of her family showed up to the wedding. You guys, were, you guys were all there. And it was basically just friends and then my side of the family. Um, and it definitely definitely hurt her. It still hurts her. Um, she doesn't really have much of a relationship with them anymore. She thinks that might change when we, when we start having kids. Um, my parents kind of feel the same way and I didn't really touch on you know my parents or my family's side of it too much I don't know if if we need to go into that I I would I would well, love to hear that
1: yeah comment. I would but before we even get there what was your feeling when you got chased with a well, metal pipe? I mean <laughs> <laughs> like did did you hit did you hit the did you hit the 22s and start sprinting or were you like a, a, a light job <laughs> wait what you laughing for eight <laughs> You? Why you got
2: Why do you have to use a reference though?
1: <laughs> I mean like what w- was it like a yo, I- I'm good like he- he's just acting up or was it was it was there like an intensity where like this man is coming after me with a pipe no, I gotta, I mean I it was roll. it
0: was very it was definitely intense. I've never been in like a, a physical altercation or anything like that based on based on race um but it it was kind of one of those like fight or flight moments. So when he had initially was like screaming and then shut the door in my face, I was like, all right, well, that didn't go well. Like trying to make it like light of the situation. And I thought that was going to be the end of it. But then when the garage door opened, I'm like, yo, this guy's really trying to, to hurt us. And it wasn't like we take off sprinting, but it was like, you're this. And I'm not, I'm not a big person at all, but I'm bigger than Jazz's dad. And I'm like, I don't want to fight your dad. And that sounds kind of funny, but it's like, I'm going to protect myself and I'm going to protect you if that's what it comes to. But mm-hmm. no, I don't I don't want to be in this physical altercation at your parents' house and God forbid something happens to me or happens to even to her dad, which I mean, I don't care about him, but I don't want to hurt somebody else or God forbid something happens to Jazz in like this scuffle. Like none of that needs to happen. So we just got in the car and we burnt off because it's just not worth it. Um, he's made like both her parents have made, you know, threats on, on my life and Jazz's life multiple times. And it's, it's one thing to kind of hear it secondhand from Jazz or hear it, hear them screaming over the phone, like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to buy a gun and I'm going to find out where he lives and I'm going to kill him. Like, those were the conversations that I've, I've heard um, versus it being, you know, real and present in your face in the moment um, and having to kind of make a decision on how you're going to move forward in that situation. Yeah. Crazy. So it's, it's, to me, it was like something out of a movie. Like I never thought that I would be in that, in that particular situation, but, um, you know, as much as it affects me, it affects jazz as well, even more so because that's her family. And it's crazy. Um, jazz has two siblings. She has an older brother and and a younger sister. And, um, she has a lot of family actually out in Australia who have come to visit and I haven't met them, but they seem to be very, they seem to be more open, but it's really just jazz's immediate family that has these feelings. And it, it blows my mind because it's like jazz grew up in the same household. She didn't grow up anywhere else. She was born in Macedonia. Like she lived in this village. She has spent her whole life essentially with these people and she's nothing like them so i'm like how did that how did that happen and i think part of it is you know when jazz got old enough you know she put herself through school she you know bought a car and then at that point she was really never home she was always out and you guys have met sylvia before one of jazz's close friends and she spent a lot of time over there and and like i alluded to before like it's not this is not a macedonian thing this is just jazz's parents thing or immediate family thing because Sylvia's family is very loving and, and open to interracial relationships like um, her, her niece uh, is guy and they have you know two beautiful kids and like these family parties are they're full of different races and they're so they're just loving people so I think maybe that has something to do with with Jazz's upbringing just because she was she spent so much time with these other people that were more accepting. Um, But I guess uh, getting back to uh, my side of it. So growing up, I I think, um, you know, as I said before, like it was, it was basically all, all white. Um, And my parents never really sat me down and was like, listen, you know, we want you to be in a relationship or eventually marry um, a black woman and that was never a conversation and i think part of that had to do with like they they saw how i grew up they saw the areas that we were in and they saw the girls that i used to introduce them to and they were all white and it was just like you know if 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 you're happy then we're happy and that was really kind of the attitude um the thing that kind of hurt me the most with the ja- with with me and jazz situation is that um my parents they live in they live in houston so they're not they're not around. So, you know, they're only seeing me a couple of times a year when I go visit them or they come up here and they're just not in, as involved as probably most parents would like to be in their, in their son or daughter's kind of love life and seeing who they date and, and um, those different types of things. And I didn't want to let them know that I was going through all of this because I would worry them, especially my mom. And, you know, I didn't want any negative feelings from my parents toward jazz because jazz didn't do anything wrong. Um, I think oftentimes like when you're talking to your parents about certain things or certain people and it's kind of a negative situation, like, Oh, well me- like maybe you shouldn't be around that person, but then they don't have enough background of jazz to see really what type of person she is because they're not in the same yeah. geographical area. So it's really kind of a weird dynamic. So, you know, as Jazz and I got more serious, um, obviously my parents wanted to, you know, know more about her upbringing and know more about her, her family dynamic and, oh, how are her parents? Like, have you met them? And I I lied to them. Um, and I was like, you know, yeah, her parents are great. Um, and um, because I didn't want them hmm. to worry. And that put me in a weird situation because like I lied to my parents. And having to kind of burden that and then I'm also looking at jazz sometimes like not in a negative way but it's like I don't want to be in this situation and I don't want to be lying to my parents so that they don't look at you some type of way and not that she like asked me to lie to them it's just like it was a weird situation that I that I was in and it kind of eventually backfired because you know me and Jazz are married eventually you know, my parents were going to come out here to the wedding and find out that I don't have a relationship with Jazz's parents or they're not coming to the wedding or all of these negative things that have happened. And they're going to look at me like, you lied to us this whole time. So that was definitely an uncomfortable situation. And we, you know, me and Jazz had a lot of work to do um, after that information came out to my parents, on you know, building that relationship back up. But, you know, I guess, looking back at all the negative things, there's so much positive as well. Um, you know, like, again, we've been married two years and thinking about having kids soon and we have this great life together and it's unfortunate that, you know, her parents uh, aren't a part of it. My parents love Jazz, um, like one of her, one of their own and they've been nothing but supportive of, of our relationship and um, it's just unfortunate that, you know, maybe our kids won't know that side of jazz's you know legacy or history or whatever you want to call it because her parents just didn't want to be a part of it so um yeah it's just it's it's a lot (laughs) wow
1: yeah yeah so well i mean like that that is that's some heavy duty some heavy duty stuff right there man uh is there anything that you learned from the, from the situation? If you were to share this experience with you, I'm sure at some point you'll share this experience with your children. Like what, what, what would you take from this that you tell them uh, whether it's go forth and be better or
0: uh, watch out for this or like, what what Um, would you share with them? I I really think I would just share with them, you know, just be, be true to who you are. And that's kind of like a cliche. um, But, just looking to jazz, like she throughout this, this whole situation, or process, she stayed true to who she is as a person. And, you know, she could have easily been like, listen, you know, I love my family and this isn't going to work out, even though like I care for you and I love you and I want to be with you. Like that's my family. You know, that, that saying that blood is thicker than water. um, And we're not going to be able to be together. She could have done that, but she didn't. And, you know, there were there were difficult conversations. There were difficult times um, where, you know, her and I did take a break and um, for different different reasons, either whether if that was something that that I was going through or something that I did or something that she was going through or, you know, trying to essentially make her her family happy or not do anything to disgrace her family or hurt her family because she does she does love them. But she stayed true to who she is and, you know, came back to me in this relationship and was like, you know what? I don't I don't care that they don't want to get to know you. Or they don't want to be, you know, a part of our relationship or even a part of my life. Like, forget me in this situation. Like, they don't even want to be a part of her life. And to kind of turn your back on your family, like, that takes a lot. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm am very close with my family. That would I can't even imagine having to turn my back on on my family to be with somebody that I care about. And the fact that she's done that and she continues to do that every day, like that's a conscious that's a conscious decision for her every single day. Every day she wakes up, she's like, you know what, you know, I gotta I gotta work in this relationship. And relationships are always gonna be work. There's there's different you know different points within everybody's relationship where you have to make a decision. Um, but she, she makes that decision every single day and I'm grateful for it. And so, you know, going back to your original question, I guess I would just, you know, share with my kids or share with anybody listening, just stay true to yourself. And, and if you know something is is right in your heart or wrong in your heart, and, you know, you don't want to be a part of that, you have to distance yourself from that and surround yourself with people that love you and support you and want to see you happy and want to see you well with whoever you decide to be with. Um, I think that's something that's that's really really important. Yeah. Wow, it's
3: amazing. Wow,
0: it's uh... amazing,
2: bro. <laughs> that's, that's yeah. I was even I was even yeah. more than I thought it would be.
1: <laughs> so you, you you I I would be curious, and Rob, you may not know this, but I'd be curious to know Jazz's Jazz's parents <sighs> and their yeah. background, how they were. Raised because you right. would come out of the womb hating black people. It's either taught or it's experienced. So what happened, or how what, what was their life like coming up that caused them to take such a hard line that they're willing to forego a relationship? Yeah, I mean, with I, their own I, flesh and blood. The only thing that
0: I can think of, and I guess is kind is kind of similar to one of Abe's relationships, is like they got done dirty by a black dude, and uh-huh. and they've never forgiven the race as a whole and they're just like because they don't it's it's like one thing to not want your your daughter to date a black person um but it's like they don't even want to interact with black people like in in public like won't even wave to like their neighbor uh who's a black person or i i i just it's just so weird to me that they just Completely cut off this entire race, I guess, and I, and I don't know why um, and i I'll never know why they're never going to give me that answer, but I can only speculate that something terrible happened um, and that's why they feel that the way that's, that's why they feel the way that they do uh, wow, um, I do want to correct
2: something this is this actually has been studied, but racism. Can be linked genetically, believe it or not. Really? Uh, yeah. So there's this term called epigenetics, which basically means that like there are some genes that yeah, are gene enforced expression. or not as enforced within you that you can carry. Exactly. That you can carry from generation to generation. So like it, it, there has been studies that racism actually is a genetic link. Okay. hold on. Hold on. Now.
1: Racism. Racism is an act. It is a a conscious act. Whereas... Okay, so hold on. Racism is a conscious act. Now, there is the... And I'm going to make this word up here because I can't think of what the other term would be, but groupism, where I'm going to hang with my group because I feel most comfortable with them. I don't like that group as much because I like my group more. So I'm going to hang with my group. So is it more of that, or is it the conscious
2: uh, the, the, the conscious hatred that's carried on. So like, we're going to get really into science here, but like there's neurons that communicate with one another to express hatred towards race. Right. So, um, the neurons that are near the part of your brain called the amygdala, which is basically the part that just tells you to fight or flight, which is really like the fear, um, mechanism that we all have. That actually fires off in some people more than others. That's really all racism is. It's that part of your brain telling you fear this thing and fight against it with whatever kind of resources and tools that you have. So that is what they're referring to when they say that it can be carried epigenetically. That's interesting. Does anybody
1: else have anything to say on that? Because I... I. I'm not trying to change the subject. Yeah, yet, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but I think you said that. Uh, I, I agree with it but I also disagree with it, but I I'd want
0: other people to No, I mean it if they if they have I to. I've heard of gene, gene expression no, um and I completely agree that then the part of our brain that you know that fight or flight and I'm now I'm just repeating A but it is I mean racism is is fear. Um it's fear of the unknown and when you're when you don't know something you have a decision to make and it's either you embrace it or you fight it. And I think, you know, on the most basic instinctual level, uh, I think that's really all that it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's very, it's that simple. It really is.
3: No, I mean, it's, you know, for me, I I wasn't going to add much. I was just, it it is interesting to think about the whole neurological aspect of it. Um, But also you know, even if it is a gene being passed down, people are consciously making this decision to hate at the end of the day. You know what I mean? So, yes. you Amen. know, I mean, Amen. look, there's a lot of stuff Amen. you can't control, but a lot of people can control this level of hate, um, you know, um, or this level of bias or racism or whatever you want to call it. Like, so, you know, it's I'm sure science can help prove out a lot of things, but, you know, with, what you can't, you know, make an excuse for is people are consciously making the decision to not you know show love to 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 show hate and to um and to to ultimately deprive themselves from really full life
0: and i and i guess to amen you can over time this is going back to kind of being sciencey but over time you can change what genes are expressed and which ones aren't over time so it's not like one of those types of things that's just set in stone so i i think there's yeah
2: well, yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, like, the brain is very plastic, and the number one way to, to alter your brain is just to be aware of what level of your behavior. Like, if you're aware and you're, just like G- uh, D- GT said, he just, like, just be a consciously nice person. If you're conscious of your actions, that, no- that right there puts you ahead of, like, more than half of the world's population totally. in terms of, like, where your brain is. Well,
1: so let's apply this, you know, again, going back to how people are raised while, while a certain gene may have been carried over and a a child, a a two or three year old child is uh, whose system one is firing way more. The amygdala is firing way more than their reasoning and their analytical ability, which is the system two there. They see, let's say in this case, they see a black man and they run and the parent says, yes, run that's a bad man you're scared of him versus the parent discouraging that behavior and when they say oh my god that's a look at that black guy he's so whatever and the parent says no don't do that don't do that everybody's I mean, I the think same kids
3: at least from my experience typically don't come out naturally biased like like the division that we see amongst race and everything is is truly something that is taught and instilled and, and and it's set in the household it's set by society it's set by interactions but kids typically don't come out seeing color and if they do they don't come out seeing something wrong with color like i always tell people there's nothing wrong with color there's something wrong if you believe something's wrong with color um but like that video like i can't remember where it's from but that video i love seeing it of the two little kids who are just like running toward each other yeah. and they're like three years old, but they met in kindergarten. Like kids are different. Like, you know, it, and and not only, and it's not just race. It's, um, it's like belief. Like, you know, you know, when you're a kid, you think you can be, you, you know, you can be on top of the world. You can be Michael Jordan. You can make it to the moon. It's not until life starts setting in that people tell you that you can't do those things that you start believing, it. you know what I mean? But that's why everyone says like, childlike naivete or childlike belief because kids believe they can do anything and don't see the wrong. They only see the good for the most part.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And to, the, to that point, GT, while children may be fearful, they are unafraid of judgment. <laughs> they don't care what other people think necessarily, but, once, but they reach a point in their life where they start to recognize other people's judgments. Oh, I'm hanging out with this crowd. Okay, they're looking at me funny. I can't hang out with that crowd but before they reach that point they don't care what you think I, if if i'm trying to walk and i keep falling down and you're laughing at mm-hmm. me i don't know why you're laughing mm-hmm. at me i'm just going to keep trying to walk or i'm going to run and and hug, hug my mm-hmm. black friend even if i'm white like i don't care what you think yeah. this is how i feel this is the six curated information interactive experience
4: curated information interactive experience this is the six. This, is six. this is the six <laughs> Six, C-I-I-X, curated information, interactive experience, what you hearing is The Six,
1: C-I-I-X, The Six. Hey y'all, welcome back to The Six, appreciate you guys listening to the warm up if you had a chance to, if, if you didn't, please go back and listen to that first and foremost so you can get a feel for who we are, but Without further ado, I want to get started here on podcast number two, talking about interracial relationships. First up, we have Rob Thomas, who's going to provide us with some interracial dating facts. Rob.
0: Uh, What's up, everybody? This is Rob Thomas with The Six. Um, So came up with some interesting stats in um, interracial marriages since the last time that we spoke, uh, nearly 40 percent of Americans say that, um, you know, a growing number of people marrying someone of a different race is good for our society, uh, which is up from 24 percent in 2010. And then uh, another interesting stat, uh, um, adults younger than 30, those with at least a bachelor's degree and those who identify as Democrat or lean democratically are especially likely to say this. Um, some contributing factors or patterns um, that contribute to interracial marriages. So you have the attitude and acceptance, uh, migration patterns, availability, which I want to circle back to towards the end, and education. Um, these were some you know, of the main contributing factors to interracial marriages. So uh, a little bit on the education piece, something that stuck out to me in 2015, 14% of newlyweds with a high school diploma or less were married to someone of a different race or ethnicity. In contrast, 18% of those with some college experience and 19% of those with a bachelor's degree or more were intermarried. Mm. Um, so it's interesting how education is kind of a uh, it's an interesting factor. Going back in history a bit, um, 1967, there was only 3% of Americans um, involved in an interracial marriage. And uh, since 2015, that's up to 17%. Um, Interracial marriages are more common in metro areas, 18% versus rural, which is 11%. Um, And then within metro areas, percentages significantly vary geographically. So for example, Honolulu has 42%. People are involved in an interracial relationship versus Jackson, Mississippi, which is only 3%. And like I said before, that represents both ends of the spectrum. So within that 18% of the metro area, significantly great, you know, variance. Um, something that I also found was interesting, New um, York City is neither top nor bottom 10. Um, three, sorry, 30, 38% of all uh, 2010 intermarriages were between white and Hispanic spouses, which I thought was interesting um, White Asian interracial marriages was 14%. White Black was 8%. In 2008, 22% of Black males married outside of their race compared to 9% of Black women. 18% of all African Americans married someone of a different race. Um, This is 13% higher than in 1980 when only 5% of African Americans married someone from a different race. And today, the most common interracial pairing is one Hispanic spouse and one white spouse. That makes up 42% of interracial marriages today. And um, as I alluded to a little earlier, I wanted to go back to the availability, um, which was one of the contributing factors slash patterns. Um, and I'm sure we could go on a tangent on this, but the systematic incarceration of black men um, from the availability standpoint, I thought was really interesting. So. Um, you know, there's, if there's, if they're locking us up, there's less of us to go around, um, which is going to open up to, you know, people going outside of their race to, you know, find those relationships, which I thought was, was kind of intriguing, but those were all the, the interesting stats that I had. Wait, so hold on. Uh, You made the
1: point just now, if they're locking us up, there's fewer of us to go around. So is that us assuming that the guys who are getting locked up would be the guys who would be dating black women and then what's left are the other uh, population of black guys who are dating interracially or who would be more open to dating interracially
0: no i i kind of took that um bit of information as there's this there's just less black men in the pot, whether that's if, if they're open to dating interracially or not. Um, mm-hmm. There's just less of us um, to even choose from or have the option to, you know, date interracially, if that makes sense. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but that's how I took it. Does anybody else have a different, different uh
3: Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's possible for us to make it as clear cut as as that, just because I think one of the things that's kind of surprising to me is, and this is, I think, is a byproduct of one, you know, being a part of that that group that has a college degree, but also not only has a college degree, but probably the environment in the college that we went to, fellas, is that you get the sense that if it's only 19%, then, you know, whether they're, you know, you know, incarcerated, educated, whatever, there's still, like, a lot of people that just don't date outside their race. So I don't know if you can even assign it to a certain... Because, like, it's such a small... It's not like something's over 50, and this, you know, one segment is driving to 50, so within that segment, it's, like, 75. You know, if it's 19, then, like, it's not like there's going to be a segment unless we really isolate black males that went to small liberal arts schools and this sort of that that, you know... Then we could maybe get into something you know more quantifiable, but you know I don't even know if we can make that sort of assumption D, of or or that that correlation of this sort of person dates outside their race where this person doesn't because it seems like regardless of whether you've been incarcerated, whether you've been college educated high school educated, majority of folks still date in um within their race.
2: I just I didn't see it like that. I don't think Rob was making that leap. I just think like you look at the numbers. What I think he said like twenty two percent of black males date yep. interracially. So so if you just take that number twenty two percent, so that's twenty two percent of black males who are not incarcerated. So if you take all the black males and who are incarcerated and they're no longer incarcerated, he's just saying there's a there's a pretty high probability that twenty two percent of that population would be they they would they would make up twenty percent of the pop- uh, male male black population that's dating irracially. that's all I think he was saying I don't think he was like making a leap that like all right well, since there's less of us to go around like yeah i, I don't know i I just feel like he was just extrapolating the yeah the, i the guess statistic.
0: i didn't I never really thought about availability as a contributing factor um student acceptance was obviously first for me um the migration patterns i mean there was another stat that i didn't think was as relevant for this group but um there's a lot of asians more so out west than there are on the east coast so or even down south so that's going to skew um when it goes back to you know geographically where these interracial relationships are are predominant um And then also going back to the education, I didn't education wasn't high on my list either as far as, you know, being a determining factor. But those stats really kind of stuck out to me um, just from how educated you are. And I guess thinking about it high in sight, um, you know, going off to college or or having a college degree, you know, you're getting those those different experiences being exposed to different people. Um, I guess, you know, I didn't think about that at first, but, you know, reading back into it and diving back into it, it it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I I
4: think, uh, I don't know if you did the actual stats for it, but I think that the higher education you have, the less likely you are to be incarcerated. So I think those two are correlated, which leads to the other point that the more education you have, the more likely you are to have an interracial relationship. I think you started off with high school and you moved your way up. It seemed like the more educated people became the, the uh, rate increased. If I'm, if I'm correct. Right, Rob.
0: Say that last part again.
4: So, so as people became more educated.
0: Right. Yes. The, the The percentage increase.
4: Yes. Yeah. So there was an increase in the percentage. So regardless of, you know, the actual numbers, there was an increase that showed a correlation. So I, I, just thinking out loud, I haven't done the stats on it, but I think the more educated you are, the less likely you are to be incarcerated as well. Obviously you'd have to probably check the stats on that. But with that being said,
2: that's pretty, I would say that's pretty so I think there is, there is like, a correlation between
0: the two. Mm.
3: So there's a few things. I definitely think like the higher education and, I use education as almost a medium of exposure. And I think oftentimes you, you know, and it's not just like dating, it's career. It's a lot of other things that education correlates is almost like a gateway for, you know, expansion. And that expansion can be personal, professional, you know, understanding, whatever. So it makes sense that the more educated you are, um, the more you'll be open to it. I just don't, you know, the the point I was making earlier about, you know, regardless of education or not, it's still such a small number is what I'm saying. And that, you know, even at the highest levels of education, and I saw this at HBS, um, you know, even at HBS, you know, or even at, you know, you know, regardless, it's not like half the brothers or half the black dudes walking around have, you know, Asian, white or Latin girlfriends. Like the majority of people are still, dating within their race so you know i definitely yeah so yes i think i think it's what i'm saying at a you know a long way around is yes i definitely think more and more education um you definitely see people who are more open and you know just more apt to you know not only date but interact with folks you know outside their race things of that sort um i would say but you also see this you also see what's consistent in the rest of society of you know, super, you know, successful black, white, Asian, Jewish, whatever types of people who just date within their race and still find some pride about dating within their race. The other thing I'll say um, is that I also think that particularly it's interesting as the minority, you also realize that your pool as you grow and you keep going, you know, higher and higher in education, your pool of available prospects, if you're looking for someone within that, edu- that has a similar educational background to you, um, shrinks. So like, cause, cause think about how many people get, have high school degrees and think about how many people have bachelor degrees, think about how many people have masters and PhDs. So naturally you're getting less and less people that are having these degrees. And as the minority, you're also getting less and less people that look like you that have these degrees. So I think that's a whole nother dynamic that I think some people don't look at is that like, you know there's just not, like, a pool of a ton of, you know, um, it's not like you have the same number of available prospects, if you will, within your race that you had when you were 18 or in high school, if you're 28 and in a master's program. Hmm. That's interesting. So, just a thought.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so – Bear with me here because I think there's one other important thing uh, that, Rob, you didn't bring up, and I think it's maybe impossible to bring up uh, quantitatively, but and I would like to hear everybody's thoughts here because it's more so of a question, so bear with me as I work through this. There's a mental model that states ideas don't die, people do, and the people that die – their ideas generally die with them so there's a reason why there's a there's there is very little uh change within a decade but there's generational changes uh or for a uh, in this case here there's uh there's uh there's a different feel surrounding interracial relationships versus 50 years ago so if if that you know if that mental model and i can't think of the name of this specific model but if that mental model is true then everybody is raised with a certain set of ideas or ideals at home and if those ideals are you must date inside your race then that the number of interracial relationships are going to be pretty low but as those kids who were taught by their parents that interracial relationships are bad, start to get greater perspective and see that there's nothing wrong with it and start to interact with people of color, then when they become parents, they're like, oh, well, you know what? This isn't that bad. I wouldn't mind my son or daughter dating a Asian, a black person, a a white person. So with that being said, do you guys believe in that mental model? Do you think it's significant to the statistical change that we've seen over the course of 20 30
4: 40 50 years i'd say so i mean we're, we're
1: talking about the uh,
4: relationships and matters of dating relationships but even in the sense of social relationships as far as your friends i think it's come a long way you know just watching how people are a lot more open to intermingle you know as far as they don't mind having friends that don't look like them as far as, you know, regardless of the race or, you know, their ethnicity and background. I think it's uh, it's, it's a lot over the last 50 years. And I think it's, it's whereas people are less judgmental because if you grow up in a, in a white area, a black area, it's not even about how sometimes how you're brought up. It might be how your friends are going to, treat you if you start to integrate with another race outside of what you know what's known to you
2: yeah i think there's some truth to that statement um and then like uh like so i think it's applicable in this instance just because we're talking about america but like you know i think about other countries and like some of the um how i see like the 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 norms that that like people like practice there so like I lived in Brazil for a year and I was, asto- I was astounded by like how diverse it was and how everyone was pretty much like I'm not saying there like racism doesn't exist because it clearly does I mean they had slaves there too um but I just was like astounded by how much they intermingled and how like you know a black guy with a, a black guy with a white lady or a, you know a mulatto lady with a black guy or, or any kind of mix you can think of like people weren't like looking at them like you know in, in the street like it, they were like aliens you know it was just like a very normal um thing so like i think the idea is formulated by it, it comes through with, with a lot of different like underlying factors um a, a, a big part of it is just like the environment that we've we all we just all kind of came up in because like if I, if I grew up in brazil i probably wouldn't know like, I would know, like, the physical differences between black, white, and whatever. But, like, in this generation that I'm in, they pro- like, I probably wouldn't even see any of that as, like, a barrier, you know? Uh, whereas, like, we see it as a barrier here. So, just kind of my take on that.
3: So, you know, it's, like, one of those things that, like, yes, to your point earlier, Don, I believe that, like, over time, you know, attitudes can change toward things. But I do think it's natural human nature that people are attracted to people within their race. It's, you know, and, and that, that doesn't come with any bigotry or anything. I think it's just natural. Um, But I do think that the opportunity to get exposure and to be open to it and to kind of like, you know, demystify the whole, like, Oh, you know, he's dating someone who's not, doesn't look like him or she's dating someone who doesn't look like her. I think that as you get more education and you get more exposure, um, not only does your perspective on, um who you want to date change um who's available to date change i think like you like we talked about last week like i don't see race as a barrier for dating just like i don't see race as a barrier for career opportunity or i don't see race as a barrier for friendship you know what i mean and i think that's some of the points i think i heard dutch making as well around like you know as you get more exposure to people you're naturally going to be open to um you know having that you know um you know, interacting with the you know, interacting with people that don't look like you on a more regular basis. So you have less of the whole who move my cheese, you know, kind of kind of phenomenon, and more just openness and um to diversity and inclusion, if you will.
0: Um I thought something also that stuck out to me, um, the Jackson, Mississippi stat and how they're still at three percent. And I guess that goes back to what Don was, was saying as far as the ideals or how you're brought up at home. Like, I mean, that's, if it's still 3% and it was 3% in in America back in 1967, like that hasn't changed. So I would be curious to see what's going to drive that change forward. Like how much more time is it going to take? I thought that was interesting. I don't know if anyone wants to speak on that at all.
2: I mean, I mean, a big part of like the like like Jackson, Mississippi is like there's nothing there. I don't think there's any kind of like, I'm, I, you know, what? let me back up because I don't want to like offend anyone who might be listening is from like Jackson, Mississippi. But I think a lot of these places that have like these high levels of diversity, there's usually like this underlying um, like asset that's there that people kind of flock to. Like there's some sort of economic advantage that they have and Jackson, Mississippi just doesn't mm-hmm. have that. And that's why I don't I don't think you've seen any kind of growth there racially or any, kind, you know, or whatever other kind of statistic you want to throw out there. Like like you see, like New York, because I mean, New York is in a really advantageous place because, you know, it's by the water. And, you know, it's just it just so happened to be where, you know, our settlers, you know, came up, will, will eventually flock to, you know, Chicago is the same way. Big industrial place. L.A. the same way. And like, like all these like other, you know, other little cities, Houston. No, I just really think it all has – there's so many other factors that play into, like, a place Mm -hmm. being diverse. Just other than just, like, okay, well, it hasn't changed in the past 50 years. But if you bring, like – if you bring Amazon to that place, I guarantee you in another 50 years, it's going to look different. You know what I mean? It just – to me, I just think all these other factors have a big, big influence.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you, Abe. Uh, Industry brings people – or attracts people who are educated and people, in my opinion, people who are educated have great perspective on on many things because they've surrounded themselves, whether it's with literature or around people who are providing other perspectives whether they agree with them or not, they are just aware of them so, yeah so Abe, uh, Rob Rob, Rob talked a little bit about the Loving Case and uh, I'm really interested to hear more about this, so if you could just take us through this
2: yeah, so um just a little bit of background. Um there's this term that you're going to constantly hear if you ever do research on this. Uh it's used in pretty much all the briefings uh throughout like this these uh, various cases with, that have to do with interracial marriages and it's called miscegenation. And miscegenation uh if you break the Latin up because it's a Latin term, it basically means to mix genera. Genera is the plural form of the word genus, which is a Greek term that means race. Um, now, they use this term in order to describe um, interracial commingling. Um, so essentially what they did, what they were saying in these, with this terminology was that we as black people were a different uh, g- genus than those who were white, uh, which is like saying like, we, like, like, let's just assume that the white people were homo sapiens and they're basically saying like, we're homo habilis homo erectus, like that's kind of how they were termed, that's the terminology they used to describe how we, like the the, the co-mingling of of races. So just a little bit of a a like taxonomy and uh, etymology there, to just to kind of get you oriented. The term that they used prior to this, like the word miscegenation was amalgamation, which we all know means like uh, to mix or blend, which is actually a more appropriate term, but I almost feel like miscegenation was like quasi- a um, what do you call it? A uh, micro, what do they call it? microaggression? Microaggressional term, uh, just to kind of like even put us down just a little bit more than we already were at the time. However, um, when, so so that so that kind of trying to give you a background. So America, when it was started, like in 1776, seven of the 13 colonies actually had laws that um outlawed uh commingling of races. So this was like this is embedded in our history, you know what I mean? Like we were founded on these types, types of principles. Um, it was a very common practice at the time until of course we get what we all know as the Bill of Rights, which only had like the first 10 amendments. Um, in 1789 though, there was, they had, the, they had what, the, the most precious amendment to us, which was the 14th amendment, which basically stated that, you know, we as human beings that are born here in this country we're naturalized here, we're citizens. And the United States cannot deprive us of any of the rights, which are life, liberty, and property, uh, without due process. So basically stating that like, if we had rights here, they couldn't take them away for us for any reason without any kind of due process of law, or any kind of jurisdiction, which protected all of us in theory. Now, um, just to give you, just fast forward a little bit, there was a, another landmark case prior to the Loving case called Pace versus Alabama, which basically ruled that anti-miscegenation laws were constitutional because it punished both blacks and whites equally. Um, and so this was kind of the basis and like some of the foundation of, uh, the Loving case. So just to give you a little background on the Loving family um, you have Richard Loving, who was a construction worker. Mildred Loving, or Mildred Jeter, at the time, she was the one who was mixed with uh, some African uh, genes as well as Native American. So she she was a light skin. She looked like Don. Okay, <laughs>
1: but but Rich, Rich Richard was a white male.
2: Yeah, Richard was the white male. He was a construction worker. Mildred Jeter was the Native American slash black lady. Um, they were both residing in Virginia fell in love, and they both were aware of this anti-miscegenation law. So what they did was they actually got married in D.C. So they left Virginia to go to D.C. for the sole purpose of getting married. They exchanged vows in D.C. This was in June of 1958. Okay? Uh, Once they exchanged vows, got married, they came back to Virginia. So this was June of 1958. July of 1958, the same exact year, they had an arrest warrant out for them. So police officials came to their home, broke down their doors, entered their bedroom, and uh, captured both of them and jailed both of them. Um, And then in October of that same year, they were indicted on felony charges, basically um, saying that they had violated these anti-miscegenation laws and the judge who looked over that case this is a very popular name. His name is Judge Leon M. Basil, uh, which basically sentenced them to one year in prison or they could move outside of VA for um, 25 years. So obviously, instead of being in prison for a year, they decided to leave Virginia for 25 years. So they so that's that's basically how they got out of being in prison. So they lived in um, so they moved from Virginia to Washington, D.C. Um, and had three children there. But there still was this piece of them that really didn't settle right with them because they felt as though, like we all kind of understand now, they they shouldn't have to uproot all of their, their whole life just because of, you know, the color of their skin. So they actually um, went to the attorney general, Robert Kennedy at the time. This is June of 63. And basically wanted to return to Virginia and what Robert Kennedy did at the time was he referred them to uh, the ACLU the American Civil Liberties Union Um, and they have branches all over the country he he referred them to the branch within Washington DC and there's two gentlemen there were two lawyers who were very very influential in bringing this loving case uh, to the Supreme Court as we learn later, they go by the name of Bernard Cohen and Philip Hirschkop. These are both white guys in DC who were really young at the time and took on this case. So what they did was they took this case to the courts in Virginia. And the same judge, Leon M. Basil, uh, refused to vacate the loving conviction. And the terminology he used in order to justify his ruling was the following. He said, and I quote, Almighty God created the races white, comma, black, comma, yellow, comma, melee and red, period. And he placed them on separate continents. And but for the interference with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the reason to mix. So basically, his terminology and reasoning was, we are all brought up in different continents, which is actually isn't true, um, because we all originated from really one continent. But he said, we're all brought up in, in different continents. So therefore, we should just mingle with ourselves and not with people from other continents. That was basically his reasoning for his ruling. So these two, these two same lawyers, um, Cohen and Hirschkopf, they didn't like that. So they actually appealed and went to the Virginia Supreme Court in 1966, so three years later. The Virginia Supreme Court upheld this ruling, this anti-miscegenation ruling, and says that VA shouldn't have forced them to leave. So that's the only thing that they did. They said they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be married, but they shouldn't have forced them to leave but they still upheld the ruling. So it's kind of like this gray area. Obviously still that meant that they should, they still couldn't be in Virginia. So um, Hirschkopf and Cohen went a step further and took this to the United States Supreme Court. And um, they had a whole army behind them at this time. They had amicus briefs from not only the ACLU and their chapter, but the whole ACLU. They had amicus briefs from the NAACP the Japanese American Citizens League, the U.S. Catholic bishops, like they just had all of this firepower behind them in order to fight this really unfair ruling. So in June of 1967, um, the Supreme court finally got around to this and they had a unanimous ruling on this. That basically said the VA miscegenation ruling was unconstitutional under Guess what? The 14th Amendment, which was set forth literally two, two centuries ago, almost in 1789. And the Chief Justice at the time, Earl Warren, quoted saying, under our Constitution, the freedom to marry or not marry a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state, which basically is the same language we already knew that was in the 14th Amendment to begin with. So this was a pretty easy ruling. It's kind of crazy. Supreme Court had a unanimous ruling on this when the Virginia Supreme Court and the Virginia judge both couldn't see this clearly. So you can obviously see how advanced the Supreme Court was in terms of just open-mindedness at the time.
1: That, that is really interesting, but I think it parallels what is going on today. And I don't want to get too deep into politics, but if you look at the current state of, of the uh, United States government, and you look at uh, what Donald Trump has done, whether it's quid pro quo or whatever you want to call it, whether you believe he did something uh, impeachable or not, you have Republicans who are saying they're – taking, they're taking the political route and saying, yeah, he did something wrong, but, but you know, yeah. it's not impeachable, right? So they, they know that it's not right, but because they, they want to side with the, the, the party and make sure they're doing right by the party, that is their initial uh, thought party party i got to stay in alignment with the party so you forget or i, I would assume they are saying no to morality and n- no to everything else that comes before the party so it sounds pretty similar virginia supreme court they they, they condemn it but they they condemn the the uh if i'm correct they condemn the marriage or what what was it that the Virginia Supreme Court did?
2: Yeah, they just said that the the judge should have never told him to leave Virginia. Essentially, okay. that, but which still is a gray area though. But they still shouldn't shouldn't have been married.
1: That's what correct. They, he upheld right. he upheld the ruling. Yeah. So it, it's it, it's it's just interesting. Like this is like history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. This is the same. Like a lot of the same things. You 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 know what's right. You know what's wrong. But it's about
2: party lines. Absolutely. So, yeah, the craziest part is after this, um, like monumental ruling, which was really about a a couple of two people who were married, who just wanted to live where they where they originally had their home, which like at the end of the day, that's really what it was about. Can we just live where we are, you know, Um, and all of this kind of transpired from that. But after that ruling, um, pretty much every other state had to remove their anti miscegenation laws um, from, you know, their constitutions or, uh, from their, you know, state rulings. The crazy part is that there's some states, there's only nine states, uh, that have never had anti-miscegenation law in their history. One of them being Washington, DC, um, New York, New Jersey, Vermont, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Alaska, Hawaii. So, um, just really interesting stuff. And then the last piece I'll say is, even in the early days of the of America, there were some um, um, House members who recognized how, um, like they saw the trend. There was like this really famous boxer at the time who had like all these kinds of affairs with you know he was a black guy. He had a, I forgot his name, but he had these affairs with black women, and he basically was saying like we need to we need to get put some new ruling in that over that overrides the Fourteenth Amendment because. He basically could foresee the Fourteenth Amendment being enough of a justification for blacks and whites to commingle, so they were actually vying for um, uh, legislation to be put in to um, into Congress in order for in order to kind of like um, preempt all these future commingling that would occur. So people actually saw this coming. Um, Like, they're obviously really racist people at the time. Um, But this was uh, something that really just could never be stopped. I think eventually reason just kind of wins overall.
4: That's really interesting, Abe. I think that uh, that really shows a lot on how far we've come, but how far we haven't come. Going back to the 1700s to almost 200 years later, where people are still fighting to know get the rights that they deserve based off that 14th amendment it's very interesting
2: yeah it's just it's just amazing that like you know like virginia isn't far from dc i mean you literally can trip and fall in in dc and be in virginia Mm
3: -hmm. however
2: it's like these laws are like night and day (laughs) you know what i mean like they just don't even correlate with one another it's just amazing how different we are from state to state I feel like all this—I—I I
1: actually never heard of this Loving case before. They had a
3: movie out. They came, they came really? with a movie.
0: Yeah, there's a movie called Loving, I believe it's called. Yeah, it is. I but like that movie it's didn't all... do it justice. So you know they got to make it entertaining for folks. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent.
2: I didn't, i never saw it, but uh, I knew I heard about this case a long time ago, and I never like dug into it. I—I um, I actually thought the United States Supreme Court—I didn't think they ruled unanimously. That's why I was looking for dissenting opinions on it. But when I found out, the U.S. Supreme Court was like, "Oh, this is unconstitutional. Like, get this off the docket." You know what I mean? I was like, "Damn," you know. And then I also didn't think it was Virginia. I thought it was Alabama at first because I, you know, we all think Alabama's like fifty years behind. So, yeah. Um, no offense to people who are listening who are in Alabama, but
3: yeah, I just think in general, we, I think the the you know the coastal the coastal folks always think the south and the middle is behind, but. No, I mean, I think I think the Virginia piece is interesting. I I do think, you know, I think going back to Don's point, you see, I think so much of what we think about, if you back out the whole d- dating aspect of it, like people, you know, even if it, it just goes back to even when they know what they should be doing is right, they won't do it because of whatever, you know, um, you know, frequency biases, loyalties to whatever that they have. I mean, like, you can't tell me even if you, Again, not to bring politics into it, but like I know a lot, uh, several people that voted for Donald Trump just because they, you know, want to vote. They wanted to vote for a Republican, not because they actually believe in that person. And, Mm. you know, it's interesting that, you know, this is an example of people knowing what they should do, knowing what they're doing is wrong. But at the same time, like there's a loyalty that goes beyond like human nature or or other humans. It's like, I'm loyal to a party, not a person or the people, which Mm. is crazy to think.
1: Mm. This is the six curated information, interactive experience,
4: curated information, interactive experience.